0: which is fun, and many of you have have impacted my life. I'm going to try to be brief so that we'll have time for what the Dominicans call circle preaching. I like it. So as you all know, this is the first retreat in a series on the ministry of reconciliation. It's a ministry which we feel this community has been but instead of jumping into definitions about reconciliations or how to use, we're going to dive into some deeper waters to start with. We're going to turn our thoughts to the Holy Trinity. So I'm going to begin with a good Catholic, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the well, Peter once described us individual believers as living stones. And Paul used a more complex metaphor. He says we are members of a body with one head, but each person in the body has a specific role or job, specialized, like the cells in the body. When we talk about these metaphors, we have to remember they're only metaphors. They never fit perfectly. But it's kind of exciting and exhilarating to me (coughs) to think that um, we all have a role to play in some bigger purpose, some bigger mission. That we're all specialized a little bit. That That is exciting to me on a couple of counts. One is that I know I need... I think, I think it's a deep-seated human need to feel that we have a purpose. We are important. That there is a, a reason for our being. Um, it's also a tremendous relief to know that I don't have to do everything. That not all gifts um, are mine. But I don't have to carry the weight of being an evangelist and a pastor and have to do all of that. That's great. Um, and so it's interesting that this is a metaphor. It is interesting to think about this metaphor a little bit and consider how is it that God cuts these stones? How does he polish them? How does he arrange them? How does he educate us? How does he differentiate these cells? And I'd like to, to propose that to you as a question for the day? How has God cut you? How has He shaped you and placed you? Do you know what your calling is? Do you have a feeling for where He's put you in the body? My feeling is that there's never a definitive answer to that question, that it's always something in process and growth. Um, we're an organic living being. But I think it's an important question to ask. And it's a really beautiful way to look at the faithfulness of God in our lives. When I look back on my life, I'm amazed at how God has used the ordinary coincidental things like the place of birth and um, the time I was born and the friends that I have to shape and fit me into the body. I think I began to first feel this call to reconciliation when I was 10 years old. I was in the fourth grade in Lubbock, Texas, and like many cities in the South, Lubbock was slow to take the heart of the Supreme Court's ruling of Brown v. Board of Education. And so 20 years after the fact, the schools were still very segregated, and the federal government intervened with the program of busing. So I was taken from my neighborhood school, which I could walk to, put on a bus across town about 20 minutes, and went to a minority school where I had the best year of my elementary education. I had a teacher there who was once named Texas State Teacher of the Year. She was good. <laughs> she was really good. And um, I discovered there that I had an ability to make friends with a lot of different kinds of people. There was nothing I didn't know about myself in a class with a bunch of people that were like me. You know that? Um, at the end of the teacher, it year, my teacher wrote me a little card, which I saved for many, many years because it was very important to me. She, said, she wrote, she said, Amy, I see you as an ambassador. You have a gift of diplomacy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was thrilling to me to think that I had a gift <laughs> because I was a really shy, really awkward kid. I was super tall and super heavy for my age. I just felt like I did not fit in. Um, and that year that was, year was good on a number of counts. Other kids started growing, which was nice. <laughs> um, and it was also just nice to be affirmed. And it, and it was more than nice. It was, it was life-giving. It was empowering. And so I just encourage you, if you see gifts in people, to speak them out, to encourage them. I think it's, one of, it's a crucial way that God shapes us and forms us through other members of the body. It's, it's very important. Okay. So, um, sometimes it can become a little too important. It became my goal and ambition to become a diplomat. That's that's not what I was going to do. (laughs) So I worked hard in high school, I applied to the Georgetown School of International Studies and was accepted into their foreign program, foreign service program, only to discover that $20,000 a year is a lot of money. (laughs) I didn't have it. And I did some quick calculations and discovered I could not make that working the summers at McDonald's. (laughs) <laughs> so um, I went to UT which was a disappointment but it was also an incredible blessing because that's when I started dating Thomas Cogdell <laughs> um, and many of you know that Thomas presented a pretty high hurdle for a girlfriend at that time because I knew that if I was going to hang out with Thomas Cogdell that meant that I was going to get arrested because <laughs> <laughs> Thomas was um, very active and, um, in abortion protest and that's what he did on the weekends. He got arrested. I knew that one of our first dates was going to be getting arrested and that's how it happened. I'll have to say that um, once again, it was not my plan, it's not the way I worked out, but going to jail was one of the biggest blessings of my life. I spent 30 days and Dell Valley Jail, not too far from here. And, um, and God broke my heart. Because when I walked into that cell, 32 women in the cell, every single one was not, did that did not come in with me it was black or Hispanic. And my heart just broke. That was not just. I knew that was not just. That was not right. And, um, and I realized there was a whole world I had never seen in my own city that I did not know. So when I got out of jail, I began going into East Boston to pick up the little girl of one of my sailmates. There were kids in there 16 years old. And this was a 16-year-old who had a little girl. So I um, started bringing her to jail to visit her mom. And um, that's how I got familiar with East Boston. I started volunteering more in East Boston. And a few years later... Thomas and I got married, and we were part of a March for Jesus, and one year March for Jesus went through East Austin and ended up on Festival Beach. And Thomas turned to me and said, this is where we're going to live. And I said, okay, this is where we'll live. We didn't really think of that as in terms of ministry of reconciliation. We just felt God wanted us to live as minorities. And so that's what we did. And once again, it was a huge blessing. We loved that house. We still miss that house. It was a wonderful time. Mm -hmm. It was in that house in 1998 that I think we really began to feel a spiritual call to a ministry of reconciliation. And many of you know the long story of of how that happened. And I'm going to skip to the end today. Um, But late in 1998... I felt moved to call a a good Catholic friend of mine. Maybe it was early, it was January, I think, January 99. Um, It was a very difficult phone call with her where she expressed her pain about the fact that she couldn't share the Eucharist with me. And I had never really considered that a problem before. But um, something about that phone call really upset me in a way that I thought was weird I couldn't understand. I couldn't sleep I could not sleep that night. so I put the kids to bed and I was I wrote a long letter I read scripture and about two in the morning I just felt this physical pain which hit my heart and it really it knocked me to the floor and all I could say it was thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus because for the first time I really got the fact that the division in the church hurts him. It's like divorce. It's like a war in a family, and, and it hurts the heart of Jesus, and I got it for the first time. Um, and that moment was so intense and so intimate that I had no thoughts of responding in any way besides prayer. Feel free to come on in. There's some seats. Okay. Um, but after a while, it Spirit stirring me and Thomas, to understand these issues, we began to study, we began to um, read a lot. And about the same time, Thomas began the Austin awesome House of Prayer, and scripture became very important to us. So naturally John seventeen was dear to our hearts. John seventeen is I believe the last chapter of the Last Supper dialogue subject? I think you're all familiar. If you look, when I was little, I had a red letter edition. And I loved that last book of this part, because it was like four solid pages of red words all in a row. It was awesome. <laughs> so this is the long, was, know, like you get Jesus talking, talking. And at the very end, he prays for the disciples. This is right before he goes to the garden. And he prays these words. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe me their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I, in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Thomas and I prayed these verses for many, many years. I think we focused on the words, they might be one. And so we imagined various scenarios and how they might be one. They have mostly involved sitting at tables and hashing through doctrine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we can be one. Um, and it really, really wasn't until last year, as we were preparing to go to Trento, that um, I looked at this verse a little more carefully. I realized what kind of unity Jesus is praying for. Do you remember? What, what kind of unity? What's the standard of unity? Unity. What? The that we may be one as Trinity. the Father Jesus. Yes. As the, that's the standard. That the Father that we may be one like the Father and the Son are one.
1: So I it began to hit me. My
0: I guess of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to make a but it began to hit me like a ton of bricks that, that maybe I had this unity thing wrong. It could be that we could have one visible, united church. And that would be awesome, but it wouldn't be the kind of unity Jesus was praying for. It could be that we could solve the problem of communion and have open communion. And we could still fall short of the unity. And on the other hand, it might be possible that we could have these problems and begin to step into that love for the Father and the Son. So I would like us to just spend a few minutes contemplating what this love of the father and the son might look like. And take a drink of water. Oh, my water's wine. Right And God has three persons. <clears throat> the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, here we go. <laughs> These persons of the Trinity are consubstantial. They're one in being, but there is a unique relationship among the persons. A communion within the Trinity, or something that some theologians have called an identity of relationship. If it were not the case that somehow there were not separate persons in the Trinity, it would be hard to understand God as love. Because if God does not experience the giving and receiving of love from a person of the same nature, capable and worthy of responding, returning that love, what does it mean for God to be love? It might be that God would have kind of a benign pity on human beings and not want them to die. That's possible. But as audacious as it sounds, I don't think that would satisfy our souls. As crazy as it sounds, we want God to love us. Isn't that true? Mm -hmm. (laughs) We want God to really love us. And I believe that that desire for intimacy with other human beings, the desire to know, know, to know, stems straight from the image of God in us. Any being made in the image of a triune God will feel incomplete without a deep intimacy and trust in another person. I believe this is the reason it takes both male and female tourism to represent God's character. I believe that the reason we so long for communion is (coughs) because Jesus... Wait, sorry. It's so hard to talk about the Trinity. (laughs) (laughs) That the God lives in community. So what does the love of the Trinity look like? Each person of the Trinity relates in harmony, submission, and honor to one another. The Son is submitted to the will of the Father. Jesus became obedient even unto death. The Father entrusted all authority to the Son, the authority to heal, to raise people from the dead, and to judge. The Son departed. Why did, why did Jesus go away? He said, it's better that I go away because your Holy Spirit can come and be with you. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself, but always to the Son. And this beautiful, honoring, circle of honoring that comes on in the Trinity. Mm. So is it a bad thing that we want to be honored? That we long to be honored and respected and recognized? I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's the way we're made, because that's the way God is made. God receives love and honor. It's not bad for us to honor God. It doesn't make God proud or puffy that we worship Him, does it? It's not wrong. I think that we have this deep, deep longing for honor and respect. But one of the tragedies of man's fall is that we became alienated from each other. And so... Our God-given-me for love, for honor, respect, um, could no longer be met in other people. And so we began grasping for honor instead of submitting to one another and giving it. And this is pretty, pretty dangerous. In my American working-class upbringing, I heard this phrase a lot. I don't know where I read, on TV or something like that. We bow to no one. Did you, anybody hear that growing up? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a, a, like a military thing, like Americans are never going to submit. To, I, I think. But anyway, um, that went a little too deep in my soul, bowing to no one. It was a problem for me when I became Catholic. Actually, I'll back up a bit. This is really strange. For some reason, when I grew up in West Texas, it was a pretty egalitarian, working-class place. In my hometown, nobody had gone to college. They all worked on the oil field. And so even things like saying, ma'am and sir, were not part of my culture. Um, it, was, it was considered kind of subservient in a bad way. Which is kind of is weird, so I've met other cultures and, and I, really, I haven't taught my children to say, ma'am and sir. It's just it's an odd thing, but it was it was a deep, deep thing in my culture that I'm as good as anybody else. That was kind of there was no class in, in my culture. So when I became Catholic, it was really weird to me on a number of levels. It was weird to have priests who were honored. It was weird to bow in front of things. It, it was just strange. And I really honestly didn't even know how to bow. I felt really awkward and self-conscious when I was expected to genuflect or bow. So God met me and helped me. <laughs> I had a dream about this time, and a dream I saw Pope John Paul II, who was Pope at the time, and he was kneeling in front of my parish church, and it was odd because there was no one around him. He was there without attendance, and I was really shy. I didn't... I felt too shy to talk to him, but at the same time I thought he's good, and he's kneeling there and he's going to need some help getting up. So, so I went over and asked, "Can I help you?" And he smiled at me and he took my arm and jumped up, like full <laughs> of energy and, and strength. But when he had my arm, and he took my arm like like a like a father would take his daughter's arm to escort her down the aisle. He held my arm tightly, and we walked we walked down the aisle of our church. Christovia. And in that church, and in most Catholic churches, the stations of the cross are along the sides of the wall. Fourteen of them, two on each side, one on each side. So there's seven stations on the way up. And every time we got to one of those stations, the Pope, who even in my dream, even in my dream, I understood this is God the Father. That's why I got it, even while I was asleep. And he took my arm and he bowed. Very deeply, and since he had my arm, I bowed too, <laughs> and so we bowed together seven times all the way to the front of the church. And I was so moved because I realized this is God the Father honoring His Son, honoring the Son for His suffering, for His death on the cross. And if God the Father can bow to Jesus, then I can do it too. <laughs> so um, that's that was a really beautiful experience because i Mm. felt i felt like just for a moment god was just was taking me into a glimpse of life in the trinity athanasius Mm. athanasius once wrote that jesus took on flesh precisely to draw men into the love of the trinity because in the person of jesus when jesus became man jesus really took on flesh to God's flesh permanently. And in that place, humanity has a seat at the table of the Trinity. And even more than that, Jesus breathed upon us. We received the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. We have the capability of living in the love of the Trinity. And when we come to understand that it's true, that it's really true, that we are in Christ, and if we're in Christ, then we're in the Father. And we have the breath of the Holy Spirit in our beings. If we can really get that, we will be truly, fully satisfied.
1: Because what could be more noble or
0: more worthy or more beautiful than to be loved by the creator of the universe? This love is satisfying enough for the persons of the Trinity to be happy for eternity. Yeah. All of eternity. They are completely satisfied for all eternity in this giving, loving. And, and we've been invited into it. The more we live in this reality, the more we'll understand the Father's words, the older son, and the parable of the prodigal son. Like, all I have is yours. It's all there. All I have is yours. If we really believe this is true, there's absolutely no reason to be jealous of anyone else. No reason at all. We have it all. <laughs> We've been invited into the love of the Trinity. If we really, really believe this, we'll be able to enter into our Father's joy over his children, even those who offend us. Our offenses will seem much lighter. Mm-hmm. So when we Christians enter into the difficult work of reconciliation, it's easy to take our eyes off of the Trinity and look to each other for it as peace or compromise. Um, we want to get it right, we want, to, we want to fix things. But it's really important to fix our eyes on the Trinity because if we look to other people for validation or success, if we have goals that we're going to meet, we run the risk of compromising truth, which may be ultimately needed for unity. So, now, I'm not this smart, I'll have to tell you, I'm stealing all of this from Nero me, so he's very smart, so I'm not, because I'm not the smart too. <laughs> okay? But I thought this was a brilliant example. So Paul's opposition to Peter for his behavior towards the Gentiles is a good example of a challenge in the church which is unpleasant, and it seems to be divisive at the time. Paul confronted Peter because they both had a revelation from God about what God was doing with the Gentiles. But then Peter ran into trouble because he wasn't popular. And, and, and to give Peter full credit, he was probably trying to maintain the unity of the church in Jerusalem, right? He was probably trying not to stir things up. He was in a hard place. And it was easier for Paul, who was off to um, off in Antioch, where there were a lot of Gentiles, to, to scold Peter. But that was an important confrontation in the church, because God was doing something, and bringing in the Gentiles that was ultimately important, and so it was yeah. worth having a fight over. So, on the other hand, we know it's easy to fall into little quarrels and dissensions when we lose our grounding in the love of God. If we don't see our brothers through the eyes of our Father, we look to human standards and to defend our righteousness. In the early church, these harmful divisions arose around who baptized whom, what foods people ate, what holidays they celebrated. And sadly, those types of arguments divide not only big streams of the church, but they will divide individual little churches, right? Have seen that? So when we contemplate the Trinity, we more easily understand that some differences in practice are not the source of division. If there's diversity among the persons of the Trinity, if the persons of the Trinity have a unique personality, a unique role, It shouldn't be surprising to us that there's some diversity among Christian believers, among their gifts, among their practices. We can even rejoice over diversity. Mm. Mm. I'd like to end with a quote from Cantola Mace's book. And if you're interested, this book is called Contemplating the Trinity. I really recommend it. There are not, unfortunately, certain criteria which can tell us in advance if something is a good or bad rift. Mm The only rule is the one Paul gave for communion: let each person examine himself or herself, and motive to guide them. If people are not able to examine themselves or let themselves be questioned by others, then the communion of the church will test them. The church is like water; it weighs bodies that fall into it. Those that have solidity and substance sink to the bottom. And those that are empty and lack substance are pushed back to the surface. My prayer for us today is that we would sink into the water's depth, which is the mystery of God's love and the love of the Trinity. I believe the church has been transformed by people who sink into this depth, even if that transformation takes a long time. I believe in time the waters of the church of the church receive this prayer that we will be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. I believe it will happen. And the Father and the Son.